Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would send your spirit, that our faith would increase, that our love would grow, that our desire to be in your presence would become something that dominates, that we would lean and walk towards you. Amen. If you found yourself confused by Jesus' parable, you're not alone. Unfortunately, I'm not going to help you this morning because I'm not going to talk about it. It's widely considered to be the most mystifying of his parables. And it's beautiful, but it's also difficult. I actually want to talk about 1 Timothy 2. If you pay attention to Christian journals, if you read any of them, you probably have noticed that over the last few years, there's been an uptick, an increasing focus on articles focusing on the question, how do we live faithfully in a hostile world? It's been a fairly normal thing for people to write about recently. For example, in First Things in February of this year, a man named Aaron Wren wrote an article, and the basic premise of the article was that our world has shifted from a positive view of Christianity to a neutral view of Christianity and now to a negative view of Christianity. In the positive world, you could expect society to actually think that Christianity is a valuable thing. You ought to be a Christian. It's a good thing. And therefore, the church responding with things like seeker-sensitive services makes sense because people are attracted to this thing they view as good. In the neutral world, the world, he thinks, views Christianity as one good amongst many, something to be respected but not sought. It's fine for you, and it's good for society, but it's not something that everybody should do. And so in that world, the church appropriately responded by engaging culture and cultural means. So in other words, good art and literature, Christian stuff could stand side by side with non-Christian stuff in the world. It could be valued even if not believed. Wren argues in that article that we've now shifted to what he views as a negative world where the world actually rejects and despises the things that are most dear and precious to Christians. And what he actually says in that article is, we've not figured out how to live in this world. Now, I'm not endorsing Wren's particular analysis of where we are as a culture. It's hard to paint with that broad of a brush. America's not a monolith. Probably depends where you live and where you work, what you experience, that sort of thing. But the question behind it is significant. How do you live when the people around you reject what you believe? How do you live if people think that what you believe is crazy? We all have experienced, at least in part, what it feels like to swim upstream. And grappling with that question is important. Many commentators have noted that there's three basic temptations that the church faces in those moments. Flight, fight, or compromise. Flight, retreat to our little enclave, raise the walls high, shut everyone else out. Fight, take back, win, control, compromise. Let go of the things that make us distinct, the parts of our belief that the world rejects. Three basic temptations. It's helpful for us to realize that we are not the first ones to go through a progression like this. Think of the Jews in the time of David. Worship of the true and living God was mandated. Belief in the true and living God was mandated. All of society revolved around 
worshiping and following and obeying God himself. Now jump forward 450 years to the time of the exile. Imagine Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in Babylon. It's not a neutral world, and it's certainly not a positive world. You have edicts like you aren't allowed to pray to God. You have edicts like you must fall down in front of this pagan idol and worship it. Hardly the same world. It's actually interesting that we face this world and we seem to have forgotten that the Jewish prophets already have addressed what it means to live faithfully in the midst of a hostile world. The prophets who were active during the exile were dealing with this question left and right, and returning to their wisdom would be good for us. I mention that because what Paul says in 1 Timothy really is that. Returning to the wisdom of the prophets, how do you live in exile? And then taking that wisdom and filtering it through the lens of Jesus Christ. And what we have in this chapter is exactly that. The wisdom of the prophets filtered through Jesus Christ for those living in a time of exile. You see, Ephesus, and this is where Timothy was, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, his protege, his dearest disciple, the one he said to the Philippians, I've got no one else like Timothy. He served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Timothy was dear and precious to Paul, faithful. And Paul writes in this letter when Timothy has been consecrated as bishop of Ephesus, and Ephesus is a hostile world. When Paul was there, there was a massive riot that shut the city down, and it was a riot directed at the Christians. Paul was imprisoned there. The cult of Artemis dominated the city of Ephesus. The cult of the emperor was particularly strong there. It was a hostile world. And Paul was talking to Timothy saying, here's how you live. And this is what he says. Look at these verses again. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. First of all, he says, it's easy to breeze past Paul's first point. I don't know if y'all are like me, but generally I want to get to the action. What are we supposed to do? And Paul puts the brakes on, and he says, first, are you praying for the people in your world? Are you praying for them? If you feel like you're swimming upstream at work because nobody else values what you value, are you praying for the people in your office? He says, are you praying for your leaders, particularly focused on the leaders? And like, if you were to, if you were to point this directly at us, he would say, are you actually praying for the people who govern our land? For the legislature? Are you praying for Glenn Youngkin? Are you praying for Joe Biden? For Nancy Pelosi? Are you praying for these people? He charges us with praying, first of all. And again, we want to jump forward to the action. And I think miss the fact in this sixth first segment where he describes living in a hostile world, he spends two of the six on prayer itself. Are you praying for these people? 
are you praying for your leaders? The particular prayer that he calls us to ask for our leaders is actually interesting. I think it's one that probably wouldn't occur to us because I'm thinking, if I say to you, are you praying for Joe Biden? The first thing that most of us would say, I'm praying for his salvation. And amen and amen. But Paul says, are you praying that you might live a peaceful and quiet life? It's actually really odd, is that not? It's like he's saying, are you praying that they create stable societies? Are you praying that they actually bring about just laws where the innocent are protected, where the vulnerable are protected? Are you praying that they would govern with mercy and wisdom and justice so that society can flourish? He's charging us with praying that they enact good and just laws that protect. This is interesting. And my guess is it's something that most of us rarely think to pray about. But this is what he says, first of all. If you were to say, well, why does he care that actually we live in a peaceful world where there's a stable society, where we can live a peaceful and quiet life? He's actually going to give us an answer to why. But before we do, it's good to stop for just a minute and clarify what he means by quiet. Because Paul does not mean by quiet that we should be keeping our heads down and not engaging the world. This word quiet does not mean silent. I think the word quiet in this passage would actually better be translated something like tranquil. What he's saying is that their lives should be full of inner peace and rest. This is a word that denotes the opposite of chaos and disturbance. It's a life of rest, a life of peace. And it's perfectly compatible to have that kind of tranquil life and be fully engaged into society, even to protest. It's important that we not misunderstand him. If you were to say, show me an example of what it looks like to be tranquil and full of peace and rest, to have this sort of life, and yet to be raising my voice in society and arguing and debating and protesting, look again at those three and that other one, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. All four of them were quite comfortable staring the most powerful king in the world in the face and saying, I'm not going to obey you when you tell me to disobey my God. Not a single one capitulated. But you know what you don't find in their debate with the king? Chaos, anger, disturbance. I think Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego's protest is perfect. We don't know what God will do, but we will not disobey him. And you can't make us. There is no frenetic, chaotic anger. My point in what he's describing is that we're to be praying for our leaders so that the society would be peaceful and quiet so that we can have a life that is fully at rest in God. That doesn't mean, in other words, not engaging the world. It doesn't mean silence. But it does mean that our lives should not be characterized by anger at what's going on. We should not be adding to the disturbance, to the chaos. We should be peaceful in these things. Make sense? He says to pray for this, though, and he's got a purpose behind this. The reason why we should be seeking these sort of lives of peace, both out in the society and in our homes, and by the way, as an aside, if you look at your own life and say, my life is defined by chaos, it's a mess. And half the time, I'm at fault. You're, by the way, join the club. If that's the way you look at your life, it's good to remember that he starts this passage by saying, pray for all. And the all includes you and me. It's okay to go, I need prayer. 
because my life is chaotic and frenetic. We should be praying for each other that we actually live in the rest and tranquility that God actually offers. But the reason why he urges us to pray for this sort of peace and tranquility is so that we can live this life that he describes is godly and dignified. Godly and dignified. This is what he's actually hoping that we would achieve. And you could say you could live a godly and a dignified life in a chaotic world. You can. Look at Paul and Philippi. Beaten unjustly, thrown in prison. It's a chaotic world. And yet what do you see of Paul and Silas in prison? They're completely at peace. They're praying and worshiping together. You can be godly and dignified in a chaotic world, but I think Paul knows that that's a whole lot harder. Most of us probably would struggle to achieve that. It's a lot easier to be godly and dignified when you're not being hit by arrows from every side and when your home is not in upheaval. This word that he uses, godly, is a word that the culture of Ephesus would have understood. It's a pagan word. It's a thoroughly thoroughly intelligible world to the culture around. And to the pagans, that word godly meant someone who fulfills their duty to the gods, someone who fulfills their duty to the ancestors, and someone who fulfills their duty to the state. This is what it means to be godly, is to fulfill your duty to the gods, the ancestors, and to the state. And the Romans had a hero. His name was Aeneas, the legendary founder of the civilization that became Rome. And this is the epithet that that hero Aeneas is given pious or godly. Pious is how the Romans translated this word. Someone who takes care of the gods, their ancestors, and the state. Paul's using a word that they would have understood. But Paul totally changes the meaning of this word, and he changes the meaning of this word to basically describe someone who is animated to their core by reverence for God. Someone who the fear of the Lord drives everything that they do, who's driven by deep faith in Jesus Christ. And it's somebody whose outer conduct matches the heart, a unified person, driven by reverence, driven by faith and the fear of the Lord, absolutely willing to obey in all circumstances. This is the person that he's describing. And so if you were to back up and follow the train of his logic, he says, pray for everybody. Pray for your rulers that you might live a peaceful and tranquil life, that you might be godly. Someone animated by faith and reverence. Someone whose conduct is full of obedience and a willingness to obey no matter what. Again, if you were to say, what does this look like? I keep going back to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Deep reverence for the Lord driving them. Faith in God driving them. Willing to obey no matter what. There's no compromise there, no capitulation. When he says dignified, though, and this is actually where I started to get excited about this passage, because the word dignified implies that the world will see. The word dignified implies that the world will be forced to respect this character, this godly, reverent, faithful character. I look back to the early church, and they were slandered incredibly. They were called cannibals. They were called people who practice incest. They were slandered incredibly. But you know what the Roman world could not help but acknowledge? They did a better job than anybody else at taking care of the poor. The Roman world couldn't help but acknowledge that they do this strange thing, they rescue unwanted babies. 
the Roman world couldn't help but acknowledge that they actually go find those who are sick and they bring them in. In times of plague, when everyone runs away, the Roman world was stunned that Christians would go to the bedside of somebody who was dying and sick. In other words, they were slandered, but the godliness of the character was seen in the world and begrudgingly the world had to acknowledge that this was something unique. Paul's point in this is that when we are praying, we're praying that our leaders might actually create a society that's stable so that we could live a life of peace and tranquility where that sort of godliness flourishes so that people see it and are stunned by it. That's the gist of these first few verses. As I studied this this week, honestly, the thing that I was hit by was all the times and places that I need to confess because the character that other people see in me is anything but this. I was struck by how many times the, the character that I've shown people is my own selfishness or my own lack of self-control. It's just one of those things that hits you in the gut of going, this is what he's calling us to, this life of godly witness where we're the shining beacon in the midst of a turbulent world and going, yet how oftentimes is the character that I display just one that's like Stephen Breedlove at his worst? He's calling us to this. And I know that all of us need to confess. He says that this life is good and acceptable to God. This is verse 3 that I'm in. And this phrase, good and acceptable, or good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, is an Old Testament word. It's a word that he lifts right out of the sacrificial system. The sacrifices were good and pleasing to God. And it's like he's saying, you know, we don't offer bulls and rams anymore. We don't offer those things. But you know what you offer? You offer this sort of life, this life animated by deep reverence, by deep faith, a life of obedience. If you want to know what you're supposed to be putting on the altar before God, it's this kind of life. He says something similar in Romans. Y'all probably remember that. The offering our lives is a living and holy sacrifice to God. He's using sacrificial language to describe this sort of life. He's describing this life that's absolutely oriented towards God, beginning with prayer, prayer for all that's flowing from reverence and faith that results in obedience. But it's a life that's lived publicly, where people see it, where people are stunned by it. In other words, it's a life that's oriented towards God, but a life of external witness. And if you were to sum up this passage, that's basically what you would say. He says, how do you live in a hostile world? Absolutely oriented towards God and absolutely in witness to your neighbor. When you think about that, you realize that this is not, you know those three temptations? This is not disengagement from the world. You can't actually be disengaged and still be a witness of the goodness of God in the world. It's also not open warfare with the world. You can't be quiet and tranquil and peaceful, praying and be at open warfare with the world. But it's also not compromise because it's absolutely animated by reverence for God, reverence for his ways, obedience to him. You see how what he's teaching cuts past all three of those temptations. This life oriented towards God, lived outwards in witness. Now, in a certain sense, I probably don't need to say this, but this life needs no justification, right? It is just good and beautiful the way that he describes it. 
But if you were to say, why? Why should I live that sort of life? Look at verse 4. In verse 4, Paul says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The reason why we're called to live this life is very simple. God desires the salvation of everyone. You look around our society and you think of the person that you disagree with most, the person who angers and frustrates you most, the person you least understand and say, God desires the salvation of that one. God longs for that one to know him, to trust him. And then you say, and so how does the salvation of God get to that person? And you back up and you realize this is why we're to have that life of witness. We stand out there as a beacon of reverence, a beacon of obedience, a beacon of faith, a beacon of tranquility in a chaotic world, a beacon of peace, so that God might communicate who he is to that person who sees us. This, by the way, puts an incredible amount of pressure on us, does it not? When you step out into your workplace and you say, I lost my temper, and you say, well, that person must not have seen the goodness of God in me today, right? It puts pressure on us. There's a call there. And if we're honest in addressing this, we can't help but go, I fail at this a lot. I need to confess. I need to be transformed. It's there that I actually want to turn because it's good to recognize in this calling that the burden of the salvation of others is actually not on your shoulders or not on my shoulders. This is really important. I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I certainly have, and I doubt that I'm alone. Where if there's somebody that you're hoping might come to know the faith, you keep coming back to this idea, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? As if it's up to you to get them saved. Surely I haven't been the only one who's felt that way. Back up. Paul says, pray for them. Paul says, live a tranquil and peaceful life that's full of this kind of godliness in front of them. That's our calling, not get them saved. And you say, so how do they get saved? And look at the next verses, five and six. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There is one mediator. There is one ransom. And guess what? It's not you and it's not me. That's good. The burden of this message reaching that person that you're praying for does not fall on our perfection. Are we called to be a witness? Absolutely. Are we called to be a beacon in their life? Absolutely. But are you the mediator? No. Am I the mediator? No. There is one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can stand between God and man. He's the only ransom, the only one whose life could actually be offered for their salvation. No matter what you do, you cannot achieve that. I cannot achieve that. Our lives are merely spent, merely meant to be spent as witnesses to him. And this is actually, I think, something good for us just to pause on for a second. He is the only mediator. He is the only ransom. Our lives are merely supposed to be witnesses to him. So this is the question. Does he animate our lives? Is he the place of our hope? Do we revolve around him, recognizing that in him we have everything, all that we need? 
Is he the thing that animates us? Is he the beacon for us? So that as we live in the world, we might be a beacon of Jesus to others. You see the point? It calls us back to rediscover our very hope. We know these things, right? We believe them, right? That Jesus is our only hope. But how often do we live as if we need to find a hope somewhere else? Whether it's in pleasure, whether it's in our success, whether it's in our reputation, how often are we living as if some other hope is needed? This whole thing calls us back to the center and says this very simply, is Jesus enough? And if Jesus is enough, then you say, then live as if he's enough. Live it, pray it, breathe it, revolve around him. It's good for us to remember this truth. It's good for us to remember that Jesus alone is the mediator, that Jesus alone is the ransom. It's with that thought that I want to close. Because try as we might, we fail to be what we are called to be, right? We struggle and we try and we fail to be what we're called to be. I don't know about y'all, actually I do. I know about myself most clearly. But I don't think I'm alone when I say that I am a long way off from the prayer life of Daniel, right? I'm a long way off from the courageous self-control of Daniel. I'm a long way off from the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Can you imagine the courage, the strength, the commitment? Your life is on the line and they say, look, we put our, hands in the, our lives in the hands of the Lord. We're not worried about the outcome. I'm a long way off from those sorts of things. I know I don't speak alone, but quite simply, I'm just too self-focused. You say, live a life of deep reverence for God, and you go, I'm that way for five minutes in the morning, and then I swing back to who will fulfill me today, needing my own way to be the one that people follow. I'm a long way off from these things. The point of all this, isn't it beautiful to remember that we have a mediator? Isn't it beautiful to remember in our own failing to live this sort of life that there is one that stands in between me and God? Isn't it beautiful that right now there is one standing in between you and the Lord who is pleading on your behalf, standing in between the two of you, holding the two sides together, saying, my very life is given as a testimony to the fact that I will not let you go. I will not let this relationship get severed. The Lord Jesus standing in between us and the Father saying, I will stand in the gap. I will be the mediator for you. It does not depend on your perfection. It depends on the mediator who stands between us and God. This is a beautiful thing to remember. And it's good to remember that as we talk about what it means to live a life of witness, we are actually not offering our own selves as perfection. We're simply saying there's one that you can trust who will stand in between you and God. One that you can trust. Amen.